So we are moving into the summer months, and one of the things that I always think about when it comes to the summer months is time to catch up on reading, time to catch up on connecting with family. And it got me thinking, when was the last time you heard or read or watched a really good story? A story that just absolutely just grabs you and and you just kind of experience it along with whatever it is, whatever form you're doing it in, or a song that captures and grabs you. I'm reminded of a, of a book I read with my eldest son. Uh, it's from an author by the name of Andrew Peterson, who is a, a musician. We sing some of his songs here. He wrote a book series called The Wingfeather Saga, which is meant for young adults, but the big and old adults should definitely read it as well. Um, and I'm, I'm reading the third book with Kyle, and it's The Monster in the Hollows. If that's not a perfect book title to read to a junior high boy, I don't know what would be. But as we're reading it, I'm reading it out loud, and I'm so caught up with what's going on that I start crying, and I start blubbering, so much so that I can't get the words out of my mouth. I am so moved by it. And don't worry, I won't spoil it for you, because you all should go out and get it and read the series. It's phenomenal, but I, I, I just was so captured with it that I couldn't even get the words out of my mouth that I was reading on the page to my son so he would know what was the big deal. And, and it was one of those, those instances that absolutely moved and captured me. And now I guess I'm kind of an evangelist for this book series because I've told you all to go buy it. But that's the thing. We get captivated with stories. We get captivated with myths and narratives, things that grab a hold of us and don't let us go. Whether it be movies or, or an, a book or music or television show or even just a conversation. I mean, you guys know people in your lives who are great storytellers and they just kind of bring you in. I, I recall uh, I heard a story yesterday about someone here at the church and she told the story about how her and her kids went to Zion National Park and they had this crazy hiking event where they walked across this little narrow, um, this little narrow precipice um, and how that was this really crazy. And I was enthralled. I loved that story. And I've heard countless stories from many of you. And so you know how to tell stories and you know how to experience stories. But, but is, there, is there a point to these stories? Is there something, something that grabs a hold of you when it comes to the story, the story of all of us together. Just like a child sitting on the edge of the bed waiting for the next part of the story. And can we just read one more chapter, Dad? It's only 9.30. We only got to get up in a few hours. Come on, one more chapter. I would love to say I never give in. But I do. But more importantly, not only do we want good stories, we want to be a part of a good story. We don't just want the story out there. We want to to live the story. However, most of the stories that, that capture uh, our children's imagination are just that. They're just imaginative. They're just myths. They're just fun fairy tales. And us adults don't get off the, the hook. There are plenty of fairy tales that many of your coworkers and many, maybe some people in this room believe that are just not true stories. We Christians know that we are, we are 
confronted constantly by a master story of the entire world, and they're competing with Jesus as the actual story. And they, sometimes they compete with, other times they contradict what the Bible says. Matter of fact, many of the stories that our contemporary culture believe are exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches. So the question is, is which story is going to capture us? Which story is it going to be? We believe that the Bible, and we know the Bible says that there is a big story to it all. And this big story is the story of every single one of us. We're all a part of it. C.S. Lewis calls it the true myth. This true myth that is found in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or what we call the gospel. And so as we begin today, we're going to start where we finished and we're going, to, we're going to go back into this gospel again. Because the Apostle Paul is going to say, it's not enough to be just sort of into Christ. You need to be captured by him. You need to be captivated with him. You need to be enthralled with him. And he's going to tell us why that is the case. But before we do that, we're going to review. The first review is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is the story of God's work in the world that finds its central expression in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So that's it right there. The life, the death, and the resurrection. And what I love about that is Jesus' life fixes our present problem. Our present problem is we don't measure up, but he lived the life we couldn't. His death fixes our past. Got rid of all the sins that we so well-deserved punishment for. And then his resurrection is that picture of where we're going to go and the life we're going to have on the new heaven and the new earth for eternity. And so that's the picture of the gospel. And where I left you guys last week, we were talking about preaching to yourself. This is the idea of telling yourself the truth and then building off of that so that the Holy Spirit can grow the fruit in you that comes from the truth of God's word. And so we did this last time. We talked about how when we come face-to-face with our sinfulness and our, this rancid fruit that we produce, it comes from the fact that we're not remembering, we're not focused on the truth that we know to be true. We talked about how in Psalm 42, David is talking to himself and saying, Oh, my soul, why are you downcast? Rejoice in Christ. And so we looked at this uh, kind of progression And it was number one, two, and three. And what I've done is I've flipped them on their head because one is the foundation. One is the root. And this is where it starts. It starts with who God is. Who is God? And this is the place where most of us never have a problem. We start with who God is, and we'll say things like he's omnipresent, omnipotent, benevolent. We'll say all these words, but then we never, ever get that from the root to the fruit. And that's where numbers two and three come in. Two is What has God done? And then three is, who am I in light of this? And this is the preaching that we have to get. See, the fruit, if we try to just go from the fruit down to who God is, we miss the gospel. Because the gospel is what connects who God is to who we are and what the fruit's going to be. And so I've got this this tree picture here to kind of help you see how this works. It's the idea of we have this root in God and what he's done which leads to the trunk that is who I am, which then produces the fruit. And we're going to continue to work through this over and over again. 
Because this is a way for us to understand how the Holy Spirit uses the doctrines that we so hold dear, we, we teach, we talk about, and how they become a lifestyle or a culture, if you will, of how to live this out. So as we go through today, Paul is going to tell us, here's why you should be captivated with Jesus. And those are the two and the three on our tree. They are the what God has done and who we are. So listen as we're going through and see if you can catch those. Because this is the kind of preaching we have to do to ourselves if we want to have the Christian life like we're supposed to. If we want to be able to have the victory that has been won for us. So here's our big idea from our passage today. Being captivated by Christ through the gospel allows us to share in Christ's victory. Being captivated by Christ through the gospel allows us to share in Christ's victory. And remember, if I'm going too fast for you and you're like, I'm trying to write stuff down and you can't get it, that's fine. Just listen. Come see me afterwards and I'll email you my notes. As long as you promise not to judge me for my bad grammar. So being captivated, being captured by Christ through the gospel so that we can share in the victory that he's already won for us. So let's see this in the text. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So the first thing we see is that our goal is to be captured or captivated by Christ. That, that very first line, it says, see to it. That means look out, watch, make sure that you don't get captivated. This word captive or to take captive is a robbery term. It's to, it's to kidnap. It's to, it's to take as a hostage. And it's a negative term. But what's interesting here is you read this. He's saying, don't get taken captive from all these things because of Christ. And what he's doing is he's doing a negative argument to say, here's all the things you shouldn't be captivated by because you're captivated by Jesus. Now, let's be honest. We heard the weird word captivating. That's a, that's a Valentine's Day word, right? That's a Hallmark Romance Channel word, like winter captivating romance or something like that, right? So it, it, that word kind of, but that's not what that word means. The word means to be captured by something. And sorry, a Hallmark romance doesn't go strong enough. The, the Valentine's Day cards that are given out about my captivating love for you is not strong enough. This is captured and never let go, is what this word means. And that's where we're supposed to be in Christ. We're supposed to be so captured by him that we would never go away. Grabbed and never let go. So what are these things that are vying for us outside of Christ? Well, the first one is philosophy. Now, this doesn't mean you can't go major in philosophy in college. All right? If you did major in philosophy in college, you're not on the highway to hell. That's not what this is saying. What this word means is it means the love of knowledge, the love of knowledge. But it's not a great word in our understanding. Really what it means is it means a view of the world, what we would say is a worldview. So it's making sense of the world. And we see this. Everybody has a worldview. They'll say, it's, the world is like this, and then they'll live accordingly. They'll say, no, no, the world's like that, and they'll live accordingly. What's interesting is Paul can't help but like 
put a little jab in there. He says, philosophy and empty deceit. Now, that word deceit means that it doesn't have any truth in it. It's misrepresenting the truth. If someone's being deceitful, they're, they're, they're lying to you. So he's saying the philosophy of the world lies to you because it's empty. It's hollow. Well, what's it hollow? What, what's, what's it missing? It's missing Christ. And isn't that the way the world works? The world wants justice, but they're never going to have it apart from Christ. The world sees something wrong, and instead of looking inside at their own sin, they look at everybody else's. And, and that's what the world has. The world, has they, they see there's a problem. They just aren't going to the right source to solve it, are they? And so this worldview, this misrepresenting of the truth that is hollow, where does it come from? Well, Paul tells us, he says, according to, which means literally handed down from. So this worldview that our, that our culture and our world loves comes from man or it comes from spiritual realm, elemental spirits. And this is the idea of, you know, seeking out some sort of higher consciousness or some sort of new age whatever. The other one is this is the way we've always done it. I'm reminded of Fiddler on the Roof, the old musical. I had to go back and watch some portions of it, and I won't be singing any of it for you. But the opening song is Tradition, and he goes, I'll tell you why we do it. I don't know, but it's tradition. And so people today, they don't even realize why they believe what they believe. It's just what they've always believed. And that's a scary place to be in because there's no legs on that. And, and that's where our world finds itself. Our world also finds itself in the thrall of the enemy. They, the enemy has sent his demons, which we all think of as red and scary and, you know, speaking Latin and spewing ectoplasm or whatever. But that's not that. They are angels. They can masquerade as angels of light. And so I firmly believe that there are religious groups that are following demons today. And that's, that fits with what Paul taught. And that fits with what Jesus taught. And so these philosophies have captured the imagination of our culture. They've captured the imagination of our children. They've captured the imagination of everyone. And so the idea here is our root problem is that we're not with Christ. But here's the cool thing about it. Verse 8 is all Paul spins on it. Paul doesn't go into a long explanation of how these worldviews are wrong. Instead, he goes, let's not focus on them. Let's focus on Christ. Like the counterfeit inspector of the bill, the dollar bill. He doesn't study all the counterfeits. He studies the real thing. Same thing here. He says, let's get into Christ. Let's go after Christ. So in verses 9 through 15, he starts with the word for, which means I'm going to tell you why. It's, it's, it's a ground. It's saying, here's the reasons why you should be captivated with Christ. And he gives us four. Because ultimately, when we're captured by a book or a movie or a song, it, it's something you can't put down, but that's not, we, we want to be so captivated with Christ that we can't spend a minute not thinking about him, that it is who we are, that when people look at us, they go, that person looks like Christ because they are with Christ, they are in Christ. So Paul gives us four reasons, he doesn't just leave us hanging, and these four reasons start in verse 9. Verse 9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. 
So the first reason to be captivated with Christ is that in Christ we are filled. In Christ we are filled. I love that, that Paul doesn't just leave us there and go, okay, be captivated with Christ, go figure it out on your own. He goes, no, let me give you some reasons. So the first one is because Jesus is God. He's not just some really nice guy that came along that had cool things to teach. He is God in the flesh. See, the Greek culture at this time believed flesh and spirit were at odds and that the flesh was bad and the spirit was good. And so this would have been incredibly repulsive to them that God, purity, would ever come into flesh, impurity. But that's exactly what God did. God sent Jesus on our behalf so that he could be the sacrifice for us his pure spotless life and then look at these words it says in verse 9 fullness of deity and then it says you have been filled with him this harkens back to that empty deceit see paul knew what he was doing he wasn't just randomly tweeting out things that kind of made sense stream of consciousness no instead he says look they're empty jesus is full you can be full and you can be filled with what with the fullness of God. It says, the fullness of God. I heard this uh, pastor that I read from this week, he said, my wife and I once stood on the shore of the Pacific Ocean, two finite dots along a seemingly infinite expanse. As we stood there, we reflected that if I were to take a pint jar and hold it down and allow the ocean to rush into it, in an instant my jar would be filled with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. But I could never put the fullness of the Pacific Ocean into my jar. Now that seems like, that doesn't make any sense. But here's how this makes sense, is when we think of Christ, he is infinite. So he can hold all of God in him. And whenever we as finite creatures dip our little soul into the fullness of Jesus, we get the fullness of God because Christ is fully in Jesus. Or Jesus is fully in God. I said that backwards. God is fully in Jesus. There we go. See, our souls are containers. Our souls are elastic. They can spread out. So the more we get of Jesus, the bigger the room gets for him to fill up. And we get some more of Jesus, and it fills up. And isn't that the Christian life? That's the Christian life. That's what sanctification is. It is we have more and more of Jesus so that when we close our eyes and walk into eternity, we've had more of Jesus at that moment than when we first started. And that's the picture of this fullness as he fills us up, we get more of God in our lives. So that's the first reason to be captivated, is that Christ, who was fully God, fills us with God. The second reason starts in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we see two metaphors here. We're going to see circumcision and baptism. So the second reason to be captivated by Christ is that in Christ... We are cut off from the flesh and made alive in him. Cut off from the flesh, made alive in him. So circumcision is an Old Testament ritual that symbolized the fact that we needed to be cut off from the flesh. We needed to be set apart, needed to be different than the world. It was an outward sign of an inward cleansing, an inward potential cleansing. This idea of putting off means to take off like old clothes and cast away. And Paul is now taking this and not using it physically. He's not saying, go get circumcised. What he's saying is, when you are a believer, it's like you've been circumcised. It means you have metaphorically 
had the flesh cut off, and now you are a part of the Spirit. You are converted. The flesh has been defeated by Christ. We are no longer found in Adam. Instead, we're found in Christ. See, circumcision was the way you entered into God's family. It was the way of saying, I identify with the nation of Israel. Same thing goes for us now, is that when we are baptized, we are saying, I identify with the Christian group. I identify with God's family. I am a follower of Christ. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with him. See, we are raised with Christ because of his resurrection. Notice this is not a future tense. It's not, hey, someday you're going to be raised up and you're going to go to heaven. That's not what it says. It says you already have been raised. See, as soon as we become a new creature, a new creation in Christ, the resurrection's already started. Though our outward bodies are deteriorating and we're closer to death each and every second, we are growing a new life inside of us because of what Christ has done in which you've been raised with him through faith. Again, that word faith, we've got to keep coming back to it. It's not, oh, I hope I get it. It's not blind faith. Instead, it's, it's belief plus action. Faith is the lived out certainty that God is real. It's I know God's real, so I'm going to live it out accordingly. Paul says that the Christian rite of baptism is our way of identifying with God. It's our way of identifying with Christ and saying, I'm in Christ, just like he is in me. This outward affirmation is saying, I've been changed inside. A few weeks ago, we had a baptism, and, and we talked about when, I, when we baptized him, we said, buried with him in baptism, risen to him with new life. That's the picture. It's a picture of what has already happened inside. And see, we won't appreciate the power of Christ if we don't recognize how wretched we are without him. There's a, there's a temptation in our world today for some Christian groups to just say, oh, we're just a little messed up. We, need to, we just need Jesus a little bit. Or, oh, we're just a little broken and we just need some glue and we'll be fixed. Or, we're just a little sick or we're just misguided or we're flawed. No, that's not what this says here. It says you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your sin. And Christ came and gave you life. It's not enough for Christ to come in and slap a Band-Aid on you or, or give you some medicine. No, he needs to give you life because without it, you're dead. And the sad part is, is our culture loves being dead. And we, if we were honest, we would say the same. But God made us alive. So when he died, we died. When he raised, we raised. And he is no longer in bondage. So guess what? We're no longer in bondage to our sin. So the second reason to be captivated in Christ is because in Christ we are cut off from the flesh and alive for him. The next one we see is in 13 and half and in verse 14. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So this metaphor is an IOU or a, a statement of debt. So the third reason to be captivated by Christ is that in Christ we are forgiven a massive debt. We are forgiven a massive 
debt. In Greco-Roman times, there was always a written note of indebtedness on a criminal, whether it be the, the cross, whether it be something like that. Paul is saying this indebtedness to God is what God nails to the cross. You only thought it was Jesus, but it's actually our indebtedness. Notice it says, it stood against us, meaning it was hostile to us, meaning there was no way for us to pay it. This was coming after us. This debt is saying, you need to die. It's not just imprisonment. It's not a slap on the wrist. It's death is required. But look at the second word of verse 14. By canceling, by canceling this record of debt, wiping it away. This word is a really powerful word and our, 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 our translations struggle with it, but this word means to obliterate all evidence of it in any way, shape, or form. It's gone. Obliterated. Not just canceled, not just filed away with the IRS somewhere that they could bring it back up when they feel like coming after you. No, it's obliterated. Our sin record is gone expunged, obliterated as if it had never existed. See, believers' sins were put onto Christ's account and then nailed on the cross. God paid the debt, taking the note and nailing it to the cross. And this progression here is impressive. We have life, why? Because we're forgiven. Why? Because our debt has been canceled. How was it canceled? It was set aside. Where was it set aside? to the cross, posting notice. You can't touch these believers. Their sins are not counted against them. So the third reason to be captivated, to be captured by Christ, is that we have been forgiven a massive debt. And then fourth, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And the metaphor here is a Roman military procession a roman military procession so this fourth reason is in christ we are victorious or in christ we are triumphant i couldn't choose between those two words they're both just too great we have to have both of them so this idea of rulers and authorities this is demonic powers that influence the rulers of our world the rulers of our businesses and it says, they have been stripped of their power because of Christ. See, the, the, the devil is the accuser, and he would go before God, and he would say, yeah, well, you want to forgive them? Look at all this sin. Because of what Christ did, the devil has nothing to say. He goes, but look at their, oh, yeah, that sin was on Jesus. But what about their, oh, that was nailed to the cross too. The devil has no teeth when it comes to our eternal destiny. And look at what it says. It says, disarmed, displayed, and defeated. Disarmed, displayed, and defeated. Paul is saying, don't surrender, don't be captivated by these impotent rulers who can't do anything to you. Instead, be captivated, be captured by the one who is triumphant. Triumphant. He put them to open shame. This word triumphant is a word that comes from the Greek. It means the end of the parade. And you're like, well, isn't that like where the guys come and pick up the poop from the animals? Or is it the fire trucks? What is the end of the parade? Well, a Roman parade, a procession, was always when a conquering general would come home. 
And he would come home, and the first thing he would do is he would ride in on a horse, very much like what we're going to see Jesus do in Revelation, where he's going to ride in on a horse, and they go, oh, look, it's the conquering general. He would be followed by some of his armies, and then it would be all of the spoils of war. And then, at the very end, it would be the other king, the other warriors, and they would have been humiliated. Many times, buck naked, having been cut and bruised and spit on, they would be being dragged behind to say, you lost, and we won. And that's what is being said here. It's a public spectacle. The enemy has lost. Jesus is triumphant. Jesus is victorious. He cannot be touched. So you may ask, wait a sec, okay, I get the visual, and that was really, really good, okay, I get the triumphant thing, but don't we see the enemy kind of winning right now? Don't we see that, that it seems like the other side is winning? Here's the thing. It's not culminated yet, but it's done. The battle has been won. It's a mopping up operation until Christ comes. So we need to rest assured. We need to rejoice like the song said because they have been thoroughly defeated and praise be to God because if we're in Christ, they can't touch us. All they can do is send us home to be with the Lord quicker. And if that's the worst they can do, praise God, I want to go home. They can't touch us. I like this. It says, triumphing over them in him. The NIV says, triumphing over them in the cross. Think about it. You're walking by a beaten and bloodied man who has just breathed his last on the cross. Triumphing is what the guards just did to him. But God flipped it on its head. And the one beaten and dying there in our place is winning. What an incredible thing. Now that Jesus has died, nothing can defeat him. But God not only defeated sin on the cross, but he also destroyed the entire enemy. The enemy is done. The evil has been destroyed. Not only disarmed, but triumphed. Not only triumphed, but humiliated. The enemy has lost. So our fourth reason to be captivated is because Jesus is triumphant. And we are when we are in him. So what does this tell us? Well, this tells us we, when we are captured by Christ... We are victorious in Christ. See, the world is, is giving us all sorts of other options and other ideas, but Christ says, come be on the winning side. Come be on the victorious side. What is he victorious over? Over those worldviews. They can't stand up with him. Over the flesh, it no longer rules us. And over those spiritual powers, which, yes, we don't need to be messing with the spiritual powers because Jesus has already taken care of them. And while we await for Jesus to come and put everything to right, we need to know the battle has been won. Now, this is not a pie-in-the-sky message. This is not, oh, you know, someday this is going to be victory in heaven. No, this is victory right here and right now. This victory is here and it can be lived out by us if we're in Christ. And the way we can, we can really tap into this is returning to that preaching to yourself. So I encouraged you at the beginning. I said, look for the twos and the threes on our list. So here, is, here it is again. Who God is, what God has done, and who am I in light of that? So where did we see what he has done and who I am in light of that? So here they are. I'll help you with this one. 
I'm not going to make you do it as homework. Don't worry. The first one, who God is. He's the merciful ruler. What has he done? He sent Jesus as fully man, fully God for me. Now, who am I in light of this? I'm filled with Christ. God dwells in me. The fullness of God dwells in me. Not in a temple, not in a tabernacle, not in the, the only the pastors or some religious elite, but in each and every one of us, God dwells. That was the first promise he gave us. Here's the second one. Who is God? God is the triumphant king. What has he done? He cut off the flesh, buried me with Christ who died on my behalf is what he's done. So what does that mean? It means flesh has no more control. I am a new creation. I am raised with Christ. Look at that promise. I'm raised with Christ. So that was our second reason. Our third reason, who is God? Well, God is just and merciful. He punishes sin, but he also lets sinners get off. How does that work? Well, we see it right here. What has he done? He nailed my sins to the cross through Christ. Who am I in light of that work? I am a pure, without blemish, blemish spotless person before Christ, before God. God sees Christ in my place instead of seeing me. I am as righteous as Christ because of Christ. So that's our third one. Our fourth one, who is God, who God is? He's the all-powerful defeater of all of his enemies. He is undefeated. He cannot be touched. What has he done? He has conquered the worldviews, the flesh, and the spiritual adversaries. He's destroyed all enemies. So who am I in light of that? Well, I am victorious in Christ. I have nothing to fear from those who oppose God. They can't touch me. See, this, this tree that we've been working on here, as we are working our way up this tree, this is what it means to believe what the Bible says and remind ourselves of it. This is that doctrine that we must constantly be reminding ourselves, this is the truth, and I have to build off of that truth. The Holy Spirit's going to bring it to mind. So my encouragement for you as we wrap up is that you can do this. You can preach to yourself. You have everything you need to do it right now. You don't need to come to church on Sunday and have me tell you how to do it because each and every one of you has a Bible. Each and every one of you has a Bible app. You can get on the Bible. So we've got to get our Bibles rightly. See, Scripture provides the material to preach to ourselves. I provide the material for us to preach to ourselves. Our worship provides the material. You provide it to each other. But it all points back to God's Word. See, we have this tendency, and I'm not immune to this because I do this too, and I view my Bible as a checkoff list. Oh, I've got to read it every single day. It means I'm a good Christian, right? Or I've got to read it because I did something bad. I've got I've to make it right with God. Or I've got to read a little more than the other people in my reading group because that way I look more spiritual. Those are all incorrect and probably sinful because we believe that lie. Instead, Bible intake is us reminding, it's, it's allowing the Holy Spirit to remind us of the truths that we so easily forget. 
that we need to be reminded on. So when we go to the Bible, it's not going to check off a list to be super spiritual. It's not going to make me, myself feel better about the sin that I did the night before or the day before. It's going to feast. It's going to feed the roots of the tree so that we can see the growth and the Spirit moving into the fruits of the Spirit. That's what we need to do. So we need to eat daily from God's Word. So, you know, I challenged you all to get in the Bible as we started out the new year, and I put out reading plans, and I put out all sorts of stuff for you to try, and some of you have stuck with it, some of you have forgotten it, some of you have, you know, whatever. Get back to it. Not because Pastor John made you feel guilty, but because that's where the truth is. That's what the Spirit's going to use to get your tree growing in the right direction. That's what the Spirit's going to use to grow that fruit in you. And you cannot wait. You cannot wait. You need to be captivated with him. And you will have that through getting into his word.